are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino, and KVMR-HD2, Nevada City. Today is Monday, August 24th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Sweetland Garden Mercantile in North San Juan on the Ridge offering organic compost tea and soil, bloom and trim supplies, also household tools, 292-9000, sweetlandgm.com, dig it. And Connecting Point, offering the Volunteer Hub, a resource to connect Nevada County residents of all ages to volunteer opportunities in the community. Information and details at volunteerhub.connectingpoint.org or 211. And the County Registrar of Voters, now hiring for paid election staff through September 15th, with training in October. The Registrar of Voters encourages community members to engage in the democratic process. Information, mynevadacounty.com slash election work. Following NPR headlines and regional weather, Keith Porter talks with Caleb Dardick of the Nevada County Relief Fund about their new initiative to raise money for Jones fire victims. We have water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. We have today's national native news. Closing out today's newscast, we bring you Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The Republican National Convention gaveled in from Charlotte, North Carolina this morning. But as NPR's Sam Greenglass reports, primetime events will continue this evening from an auditorium in Washington, D.C. President Trump's son, Don Jr., and Senator Tim Scott, the lone black Republican in the United States Senate, will headline the convention's first night. Former U.N. Secretary Nikki Haley will also get top billing. At the GOP gathering in Charlotte, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel called the Democrats' convention depressing. Our party is unified, our supporters are energized, and now we will go forward confident in our cause of re-electing President Trump and Vice President Pence in 70 days from now. President Trump made a surprise appearance in North Carolina, speaking for nearly an hour at the indoor gathering of delegates who made his nomination official. Sam Greenglass, NPR News. New York's Democratic Attorney General is asking a court to enforce subpoenas in an investigation into whether Donald Trump's businesses inflated assets on financial statements. State Attorney General Letitia James in a petition filed today naming the Trump Organization and other business entities. It also names Eric Trump, the president's son. The Attorney General is looking at whether the Trump Organization inflated the value of its assets as it sought to secure loans, tax breaks, and other economic benefits. Former Republican Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona is endorsing Joe Biden for president. From member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Jimmy Jenkins reports Flake says it will be the first time he's voted for a Democratic candidate for president. Citing President Trump's defiance of the intelligence community, his treatment of allies, and a litany of other complaints, Flake says he cannot support a man who he believes is damaging the country. In a live-streamed address, Flake posed a question to fellow Republicans who believe in the power of conservative ideas. Will we be in a better position to make the conservative case for governing after four more years of this administration? 
For Flake, the answer is a hard no. He argues it is no longer enough to simply register disapproval of President Trump. He must be replaced. Arizona is considered a key battleground state in the election. For NPR News, I'm Jimmy Jenkins in Phoenix. World Health Organization officials say using plasma from those who have recovered from COVID-19 to treat those who are sick is still considered to be an experimental therapy. That preliminary results on whether the technique works remain inconclusive. President Trump over the weekend approved an emergency authorization of so-called convalescent plasma for the treatment of COVID-19. WHO's chief scientist says studies on the effectiveness of the technique have been small so far. Stocks continued their record run-up. The Dow gained 378 points. The Nasdaq was up 67 points today. You're listening to NPR. The popular Chinese-owned video app TikTok is taking aim at the Trump administration's efforts to ban it from the U.S. amid security concerns. Owned by Chinese company ByteDance, TikTok contends the app poses no threat. The suit filed today in federal court against the Commerce Department, President Trump and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. The company is saying it's seeking to prevent the U.S. government from banning TikTok without, quote, due process. Scientists in Hong Kong say they have studied a patient who was infected twice with the coronavirus. NPR's Richard Harris says more. The 33-year-old man first got sick in March with a headache, sore throat, and fever that lasted three days. He tested positive for the coronavirus. Long after he recovered, he traveled to Europe. When he returned home in July, he tested positive again at the airport. However, the second time around, he did not have any symptoms. So it could well be that his immune system was primed for a second exposure and successfully protected him. This is the clearest evidence to date that people can get infected a second time with a coronavirus, though it's only a single case, so it's not clear whether this is just a fluke. The research has been accepted for publication in a journal published by the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Richard Harris, NPR News. One thing that has been shifted by the coronavirus, requirements concerning carry-out cocktails and other alcoholic beverages. A total of 33 states in the District of Columbia are temporarily allowing carry-out cocktails during the pandemic, up from just two previously. Struggling restaurants say it's a lifeline allowing them to rehire bartenders and pay rent during the coronavirus pandemic, which has severely cut back on the number of people dining out. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight there will be widespread haze, otherwise partly cloudy skies with a low around 65. On Tuesday, there will also be a widespread haze with intermittent sunny skies and a high near 89. Tuesday night is expected to have clear skies with a low around 63. And there is a red flag warning in effect in the Nevada County area until 11 p.m. tonight. In Sacramento tonight, widespread haze is expected, otherwise partly cloudy skies with a low around 68. On Tuesday, widespread haze will continue, otherwise sunny skies with a high near 94, and clear skies are expected Tuesday night with a low around 65. Tonight in Truckee, isolated showers and thunderstorms are possible, otherwise partly cloudy skies with a low around 49. On Tuesday, scattered showers and thunderstorms are possible after 11 a.m. Widespread haze is expected with a high near 80, and scattered showers and thunderstorms are possible before 11 p.m., otherwise mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 47. There is a fire weather watch in effect tomorrow afternoon through tomorrow evening in the Truckee region. 
And tonight in Angel's Camp, expect widespread haze, otherwise partly cloudy skies with a low around 68. On Tuesday, widespread haze is expected, otherwise sunny skies with a high near 92, and an overnight low around 67 with clear skies expected. There is also a red flag warning in effect until 11 p.m. tonight in the Angel's Camp area. I'm going to talk with Caleb Dardick, and Caleb Dardick is someone well-known in our community. He is formerly the executive director of the South Huber River Citizens League, among other things. He joined the Nevada County Executive Leadership Team in March, or sorry, in September of last year, to focus on wildfires and emergency planning, and by golly, he's had a, uh, an opportunity to do that. And in March, he became the project administrator for the Nevada County Relief Fund uh, as part of our COVID-19 response locally, and that fund has just announced a new aspect of uh, support for the fire victims of the Jones fire. So, Caleb, welcome to KVMR. Yeah, good morning, Keith. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here, and thank you very much for what you're doing for our community. But uh, why don't you start, just give us a little bit of a background on the Nevada County Relief Fund for people who may not be aware, or uh, we need a little bit refreshed on what that is and how that got started, and then we'll talk about what this new uh, aspect of it is. Great. I would be happy to. So um, it feels like years ago, and I'm sure many of your listeners feel the same way, but it was just last March when the shelter-in-place order went in, and immediately we saw so many of our friends and associates uh, have their businesses shut down for shelter-in-place, and uh, people were losing their work, and we saw a lot of people needing assistance. So the county came together with the Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital Foundation and the Tahoe Truckee Community Foundation, the Sierra Business Council, the Center for Nonprofit Leadership, and the Economic Resource Council to create the Nevada County Relief Fund. And it started with a challenge grant from the Board of Supervisors, about $100,000 in mid-April. And we had no idea how the community would respond, given how much everyone was already suffering economically at that point. And what's been absolutely stunning and yet not surprising, given how generous our community is, we've raised $476,000 to date, nearly a half a million dollars leveraged off that 100000 So this community is incredibly generous and rallies together. As a result, we've, give, we've given half of that money to the nonprofit organizations in our community that are providing direct safety net assistance to our most vulnerable populations, seniors, people with disabilities, uh, families that are really struggling with food and shelter and other, other demands on their, on their lives and families right now. And the other half as micro-grants to small businesses, giving them a lifeline to pay their rent, keep their payroll going, and keep the lights on. And it's just been a very gratifying and um, Really wonderful program. People are still making donations. Money is still coming in to nevcorelief.org. And so if there are listeners out there who haven't done it yet, that's amazing. What's really amazing to me is that in a county of 100,000 people, we've raised nearly half a million dollars from just under 350 donors. 
So if you haven't donated yet, it's not too late. This is really a great way to get money directly to those who need it and to the small businesses that are really the lifeline of our, of our local economy. Yeah, talk about supporting our community. And just to recap, so nearly half a million dollars has been distributed to nonprofits and small businesses to keep the economy going in our community. Is that accurate? That's right. And then when the coronavirus relief funds came through the state to the county, uh, the Board of Supervisors set aside another $250,000 uh, for this purpose. And so we because of the Jones fire, extended the deadline for applications to this Friday, the 28th. So again, if, you, if you're a small business or a nonprofit, please go to nebcorelief.org and go to the apply page. We've extended it a week from last Friday to this Friday, and we have $250,000 from the county that we'll be dispersing as well. Great. So that actually brings our total very close to uh, $750,000. Great. Well, and then uh, because of the Jones fire, we've had uh, significant losses in our community. And so there's an aspect that uh, the relief fund has stepped up to to say, let's help with this too, right? But this, our heart goes out to everyone who had to evacuate, but especially to those who lost their homes. You know, early reports from Cal Fire was that there were six residential structures lost and families displaced. Uh, the latest Cal Fire update that came out this morning confirms the number at 14 okay. residents. That's, that's, a, that's not, a new number, yeah, that we have not heard that number. At least I had not heard that yeah. number before now. Thank you. Yeah, so if you go to the Cal Fire site, it's posted there, updated this morning. So we're up to 14 residents uh, who've lost their homes. And so the decision was made last week that we should create a separate fund, uh, not a separate fund, but a uh, an opportunity within the Nevada County Relief Fund for folks to make donations to a relief and recovery, wildfire relief and recovery fund. So again, if you want to donate, go to nevcorelief.org. Once you go to the hit on the donate button, and when you get to the donate button, you'll have a choice of two drop downs, either the general Nevada County Relief Fund, which is the COVID relief, or another choice of fire relief. We started that, Keith, Saturday afternoon, and we've already raised over $5,200 from this community. We are just so gratified by the response and hope it will continue, you know, because we know there are many people out there who are just sort of coming to grips with the reality that they've lost their home and trying to figure out what they need. And although plenty of people have insurance, it sometimes can take months for those insurance payments to come through. So the ability to raise money quickly and to disperse it quickly is what we're hoping to accomplish with this. So if, if someone in recovery fund, excuse me, if someone has found that they've been damaged by the fire and not been able to recover fully on their own, can they apply for, um, for help through this fund? Absolutely. I want to be clear that we can only give away what we raised. And so we've only raised 5,000 so far, but if, more money comes in, um, then we will disperse it, you know, to those who need it. So I do encourage people to apply now, even though we don't know how much we have, because in some way that'll help us determine the need. If we see that there are, you know, a dozen families out there that need help, you know, we can start talking to them and figuring out what we need. You know, you can kind of do the math. We're going to need quite a bit of, of money to, you know, get people back up on their feet. Absolutely. And uh, we know that Woolman School was damaged somewhat in the fire, and also the uh, infrastructure of the Independence Trail was totally uh, lost, all the, all the wood parts anyway, the wooden parts. So there's lots to do in our community, isn't there? 
There, there certainly is. I mean, the for example, the Woman School, which is now called, you know, Woman at the Sarah Perens Center, right. that fire really hit them hard. I spoke to Marty Coleman Hunt, who's the executive director there, and she described how the wildfire took out a third of their buildings, six dormitory cabins and a bathhouse, teachers' residence, so much of the farm operation that Sierra Harvest was involved with, office buildings that housed Sierra Streams Institute, so many uh, people impacted by this. But they do have an immediate need uh, to repair their well and drinking water system and their electrical system, the infrastructure, because they had about 20 people living there in about five or six different houses, and they've all been displaced. And these 20 people is elderly couple. There's a woman who's nine months pregnant, uh, families with kids, and we get, their homes survived, but they need to get the water system reconnected. They need to get uh, you know electrical systems back up and running, and they they need a little bit of money right now to to make that happen. So I'm really encouraging people to you know give to the fund. We definitely want to help uh, those families at the Woman School get back in as soon as possible. Well, Caleb, thank you for sharing all of that with us this morning. I'm sure the community will step up. I know the Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital Foundation is the administrator of this. That means donations are tax deductible. Uh, They're doing it for no administrative fee. Uh, Once again, people can donate how? Going to Nevada County Relief Fund? That's right. Go to the Nevada County Relief Fund. uh, The web address is easy to remember. It's NEVCO, relief, N-E-V-C-O, relief.org. And then to give... Uh, press the donate button, and if you're someone who, unfortunately, if you've lost your house or been displaced by this fire, don't hesitate to apply and to uh, email us at the info at org as well so we can start connecting you to services. All right. Caleb Dardick, thank you very much for joining us on KVMR. Thank you, KVMR. Thank you, Keith. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. We'll have a refreshing change of topic today, and we're not going to talk about wildfires and water, but instead we'll talk about sea level rise. Okay. Where do we start on this? Well, we can start by talking about predictions. Scientists have noticed that the predictions really are not reflecting the observations that we're making in our oceans. And uh, we're we're not getting it right. I mean, we know that melting glaciers and ice sheets, they add water, right, to to, to the ocean. And we also know that warmer temperatures cause the water molecule to expand. And that equates to more water occupying space in the ocean. So these are the things that we know. But the problem that the scientists have noticed is when you add all this stuff up, these numbers up uh, from these processes, that they don't really illustrate the picture of how we see our oceans today. They describe it as... uh, the water budget doesn't balance. <laughs> the water budget doesn't balance. Well, well, are we getting a better handle on the on predicting the sea level rise? Well, uh, there is a recent study that was published by NASA, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory down in Southern California. Their goal was to gain some new insight to the historical measurements, so we can forecast based on the factors that we know uh, more accurately. That was their goal. And with that information, they're hoping to find out how our global communities will be impacted in the future. We want to get it right so that we can start implementing uh, uh, alternative uh, 
programs, adaptable programs. Uh, researchers uh, found that the estimates of sea level variations that were based on tide gauge observations, they overestimated. They overestimated the global sea levels prior to 1970. So it's, it just hasn't been accurate enough for us. More recently, uh, NOAA, which is National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, they published a flooding report, and they have found that sea level rise-related flooding events along the U.S. coastal areas over the last 20 years are rising. And they're talking about, uh, as far as reasons for this happening uh, or where this is happening, it's uh, <clears throat> the impacts are more frequent, the extent of the area that's being impacted is greater, and the depth of sea level rise that changed. Is, is increasing. So they're, they're noticing uh, very different things from what they used to. Well, it's such a big problem, Steve. How do all the details uh, that come into play, how do they balance themselves out? Well, you know, as far as the tide gauge measurements go, they, they're now using satellite data. It's much better data. And there's an enormous uh, data set of, of uh, coming out of satellites. Now, mountain glacier meltwater, that's, uh, that's considered a recharge component to adding water to our oceans. And this contribution of, of glaciers is being noticed now as decreasing, as slowing down. And, of course, satellite data is what's telling us this. Now, there's also the Greenland ice sheet. That's a little bit different. This is a huge ice sheet, right? It's, it's, it's in, the, uh, in, in, in this case, it's in the uh, Arctic areas. And the losses do explain the increased rate of sea level rise before 1940. So we, we are losing water in the Greenland ice sheet, from the Greenland ice sheet, and now we can actually calc that out using the satellite data and uh, confirm that we are we're correct on that. Now, another significant contribution to sea level rise is the thermal expansion of water. I mentioned that earlier. When the Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheet mass loses its water to the ocean, that meltwater, which is now not frozen anymore, it actually has some more energy in it, it becomes warmer. And when that happens, the water molecules expand, which means that that same molecule of water takes up more space, which means cumulatively our sea levels will rise. Now, here's, here's a surprise. There was another new study that, that uh, found that during the 1970s, this is when dam construction was at its peak, sea level rise significantly slowed down. And there's a postdoctoral fellow at JPL, the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He said that we impounded so much fresh water during that time period that humanity nearly brought sea level rise to a halt. So um, quite significant. If people think that mankind can't uh, alter some very significant processes on this planet of ours, they're, they're wrong. So this is how the new information shakes out. Ice sheet melt and thermal expansion, those two things, that accounts for about two-thirds of what we're observing in the global mean sea level rise. Mountain glaciers, uh, meltwater, like glaciers coming off of Mount Shasta and many of the other glaciers around the uh, world, they account for about 20% of the sea level rise. And then the declining fresh water, uh, water storage uh, from the dams, things like that, that are on land, that adds that last 10%. That's how it's, it's divvied up. What do you think has been the breakthrough for improving our understanding of sea level rise? Well, by far, it's the satellite data. There's a program called GRACE, and, uh, and then there was a follow-up program to GRACE, which is called GRACE Follow-Up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the data coming off of those satellites, I think they're satellites that, that uh, orbit the Earth in pairs, and they use data from each of the uh, satellites to, to uh, count out what's going on. 
uh, it's, it's, tr- it's moved us forward tremendously, hugely. If, if listeners really want a good scientific read, <laughs> uh, listeners could uh, get the most recently published magazine called Nature. All right, It was published in August of 19, and that will uh, explain to a lot greater detail what we're thinking as far as how sea level rise is changing and, and why. Well, Steve, uh, lots, of, lots of new information, fascinating stuff. And thank you so much for your contributions to KVMR News. Oh, you bet. Yeah, There's always, there are always things happening in the world of water. Yep. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The case against a Lakota organizer who is part of a July action near Mount Rushmore is headed to trial. Nick Tilson, the founder of Indian Collective, faces three felony charges and four misdemeanors. Lee Strubinger reports. Nick Tilson says he will not consider a plea deal. Oh no, we're going to trial. We're not. We're not. Ta- we're not taking. We're not taking no plea deals. Um, these charges are all unfounded. Tilson faces three felony charges. One alleges that he stole a shield from a National Guard soldier. Another charge claims that guard member was afraid of, quote, bodily injury. The third felony charge is for allegedly directing a van towards a police officer. Protesters used three vans to block the highway leading up to Mount Rushmore before the fireworks show in July. The state says those individuals were outside a protest zone established in Keystone, east of the monument. Brendan Johnson is one attorney representing Tilson. He says they want a jury to see the entire picture. And that is what we will be emphasizing, that there were a group of of other protesters there that were uh, behaving inappropriately, uh, including uh, uh, behaving inappropriately to law enforcement. This was a situation that we don't believe needed to escalate in the manner in which it did. Tilson supporters have collected more than 14,500 signatures asking the Pennington County State's Attorney Mark Vargo to drop the charges. They handed over those documents after a preliminary hearing. Vargo says he doesn't comment on pending cases. I'm at something of a disadvantage. I don't get to have a conversation with you about the whys and the wherefores, uh, but I will certainly take this seriously and I will review uh, both these petitions and other outreach that we've received. Tilson faces up to 16 years and 30 days in jail. No other hearing or trial dates have been set. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strupinger in Rapid City. Vice President Myron Leiser of the Navajo Nation is among speakers listed to address the Republican National Convention, which kicked off Monday in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Trump campaign released a list of convention speakers Sunday. Leiser recently greeted Vice President Mike Pence at the International Airport in Arizona. He spoke with Pence about the tribe's fight against COVID-19 and requested a deadline extension for the use of CARES Act funding. In a statement from Leiser, he said the meeting with Pence was a chance to speak face-to-face with White House leadership and an opportunity to strengthen partnerships. Leiser mentioned the visit during a recent Navajo Nation virtual town hall. Just the other day, I was with uh, Vice President Pence, and uh, we made sure that uh, our federal family and our congressional delegation know that We need uh, them to advocate for us. 
uh, running uh, the nation is about relationships. And uh, we certainly developed and worked very hard to establish what we have now. And uh, only to lose it, uh, you know, it would, would be something that would be uh, terribly hard to to overcome. And so we'll take those opportunities as they come. Lizer was also among tribal leaders invited to meet with President Trump in Arizona in May to talk about COVID-19 and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez was among 17 leaders in the U.S. to deliver a keynote address last week at the Democratic National Convention. Lizer is scheduled to speak to Republicans Tuesday. Also expected to speak Tuesday is Nicholas Sandman, the teenager who is at the center of a viral video controversy involving an encounter with Native people at the National Mall in D.C. last year. Meanwhile, Monday's convention agenda included a roll call officially nominating President Trump as the party's choice for president. Delegates took part in the roll call both in person and by video. President Trump is scheduled to speak to the convention on Thursday. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. As progressive champion John Lewis warned, your right to vote is not guaranteed. You can lose it. You see, it's one thing to have the right to cast your ballot, but it's quite another thing to be able to exercise that right. During the past decade, Republican officials and operatives have become experts at voter suppression, using legal technicalities, poll closures, fraud, fear-mongering, and plain old thuggish intimidation to shut out voters who are inclined to support Democratic candidates. Rather than winning votes, their game is preventing votes. And now comes Donald Trump with a pernicious scheme to keep millions of us from having our say in November's election. Here's the story. Because of the spreading COVID-19 health crisis, a majority of Americans are reluctant to risk their lives by voting in crowded polling places. Shouldn't be a problem, though. Just let everyone who's concerned use our nation's excellent, reliable, trusted postal service to cast their votes by mail. But such a sensible solution panicked Trump. Eek, he shrieked. Mail-in voting will increase turnout, and that's bad for me. Yet, he can't just ban voters from using the mail, so he came up with a maniacal plan B. Simply defund the U.S. Postal Service so it can't do its job, thus forcing everyone to vote in person or give up their voting rights. Sure enough, in March, he personally killed a bipartisan provision in the National Economic Rescue Package that would have assured timely delivery of our mail. Then in May, he installed one of his partisan mega-donors as Postmaster General, and he is now sabotaging delivery times by arbitrarily slashing the hours of postal workers. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help save our public post office and our right to vote from this tin-hatted third-world potentate, go to usmailnotforsale.org. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown the monthly newsletter with Hightower's populist take on what the powers that be are up to. Find out more at HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. Coming up next, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. 
for Emory Audio Production. I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a safe evening.